0: Also with you. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are able to gather together around your word today, this evening as we celebrate Trinity Sunday. Thank you, Father, for your grace granted to us, unworthy and undeserving as we are, in your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, for your love, a love of the Father so great that Jesus died on the cross in order to save us. And thank you for your Holy Spirit in whose fellowship we live in full confidence of the resurrection to come. And now please teach me to speak faithfully and clearly to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oh, good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to church. Today, we celebrate, and we continue to celebrate, even though it's evening, uh, Trinity Sunday. Okay, so what is Trinity? If you turn with me to the guide in your bulletin, in the center of the bulletin, you will find uh, that I have chosen the subject of our discussion today as our Trinitarian God of Grace, Love, and Fellowship. Um, using words from our epistle reading today from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, on page 1157, that teaches us that there is more than one person, a plurality, if you like, in one God, in the one God that we worship. But having said that, how do we explain to a non-believer or to a pre-believer what the Trinity is? After all, They will say to you, the word trinity to describe God is never, it cannot be found in the Bible. And they will tell you, you say Christians worship one God, and yet Christians say that God is made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And doesn't that sound suspiciously like there are three gods? Oh, friends, sometimes in order to try to be helpful, Uh, and try to be helpful and try to clarify to them uh, what we understand about the Trinity, we put forward some illustrations. Some are helpful, while others are just confusing and misleading. For example, like the one that uh, we hear so often, uh, talking about ice and water and steam, which misleads us to think of God as existing in different states, at different times, and at different temperatures. Because while a block of ice can exist at any one time below uh, zero degrees Celsius, it, cannot exist, uh, it cannot exist as wo- it cannot exist as ice above that. And uh, a ball of water can exist between uh, one degree or zero plus degrees to below 100 degrees Celsius. Or then we think of steam that can only exist as steam above 100 degrees Celsius. While God, our immense God, is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at the very same time, under all circumstances. Some people tell me that it is, that is impossible to imagine. I agree. It may be impossible to imagine, But just because it is impossible to imagine doesn't mean it cannot be true. Let me explain. Over the past couple of weeks since the general election, 14, the public and the social media has been full of very exciting stuff. We were told that the police has found lots and lots of money, oodles and oodles of money. And we were also told that billions of ringgit has have allegedly been misused. We are also told that we have a national debt of over a trillion ringgit, billions as in nine zeros, and trillions as in 12 zeros. Now, mind you, I cannot imagine my personal bank account bulging with that many zeros. It has been zero before, but I cannot imagine it uh, bulging with so many zeros. But friends, that doesn't mean that I cannot have an idea of what those billions and trillions of ringgit means, or to, to quote a very ex- an unhealthy example, or the number of bowls of curry laksa that that would buy. So it's the same way with knowing about the Trinitarian God. We cannot imagine how God can live like that as three persons, because it is beyond our personal and physical human experience. But we can still know and believe in a majestic, awesome God who can and is able to exist as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, friends, at the very foundation of it, if we say as Christians that we believe in God, then we must believe in what He tells us about Himself in Scripture. It may be beyond our imagination, but we believe that Scripture tells us that He is one God, yet one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the only way to see whether that's true or not is to go to Scripture and see what God has told us about Himself. So we look at God in the Old Testament first. And we go right to the very beginning of the Old Testament, to creation, the account of creation in page 1 and verse 1 of the creation account. Let me read it for you, the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, friends, if you look a little bit further down, as we did uh, in our series a couple of years ago on Genesis, you will find that the Bible, Scripture repeats these very same words in Genesis 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26. And now, interesting to note, it might be a little bit technical, but interesting to note that the Hebrew word Elohim, used here for God, is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament as a plural form, not as a singular form. And yet, the Hebrew word used here for create is a singular verb. It's the same as saying, my family lives in Kuala Lumpur. See that in English. It doesn't carry the same weight, but yeah. It's the same as saying, my family lives in Kuala Lumpur. So what do we see? We see that God speaks in the creation account and creation came into being while God's Spirit hovers over the waters. Now, it would be too much to claim at this point that the Scripture points towards the Trinitarian God at work in uh, creation. Before we read more, uh, from God's more complete revelation in the New Testament, particularly from John chapter one verses one to three, but even as it stands in the creation account, Scripture points us towards a plurality or more than a person in the one God. Now we go quickly to Genesis three on page three. Remember how Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell under God's judgment in the in the fall. Yet God showed His grace that even when he passes judgment, he was gracious to Adam and Eve, even though they did not deserve anything from him. Yet God, in Genesis 3.15, on page 3, promised that the, offspring of man, uh, that the offspring of woman would deal decisively with the, the serpent, though he himself would suffer. God would act to save humanity through the woman's offspring. And we know that God cannot just simply use an ordinary creature, even if he might be a mighty angel, to turn away his own wrath and his own judgment. That would simply not be God. It would need God himself to save humanity from his own judgment and wrath. And we know from the fuller um, revelation in the New Testament that it is Jesus who will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, who is the offspring of woman, who will deal decisively with sin and death. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son so that all who believed in him could be saved. At this point, though, we can see that scripture again points us towards a priority in the one God. Now we go quickly to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 to 9, that Dr. Johanna was reading just now. We we want to look particularly at the confession of Israel that you can find on Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Let me read it to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel's faith proclaims that God is one God. The Lord is one God. And if you were to tell an Israelite or a a Jew, that uh, he worships more than, three, uh, more than one God, he will stone you to death. Now, interestingly, again, uh, we are in danger of going too technical on this one, but again, just to explain, there are two words in the Hebrew language that can be used to describe one or oneness. Now, one of them is used exclusively to explain the singularity, the unity, just one, satu and no nothing else. The other word which is used here in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 is used to associate oneness with more than one. In Scripture, it is used to associate oneness with more than one. Let me give you a couple of examples. Scripture uses this same word that is used in the Shema to describe Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. One flesh in Genesis 2, 4. A priority in the oneness, if you like. Another example, in Exodus 24, verse 3, when Moses brought down the commandments of God from Mount Sinai, all the people answered Moses in this way, with one voice. And they proclaimed this. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They proclaim it in One voice, again, associating oneness or one with a sense of the plurality in the crowd, pointing to a sense of plurality in the one God. Now we go and look at the prophets, what they say. I've just chosen two prophets, uh, Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel. Let's look first at um, Isaiah 48 Verse 16, on page 727. You can find this on page 727. Let me read read it to you. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. He was referring to his spirit and associating him with his suffering servant. In the whole of Isaiah 48, the chapter itself, God speaks of his distress, his sadness, at the continuing sinfulness of Israel, his people. But here in verse 16, God speaks of his servant, whom he will send, and his spirit. Again, the hint of priority in action uh, of salvation. And in Isaiah 61, verse 1, on page 741, the purpose of the servant, let me read that to you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Briefly here again, speaking of the Spirit of God, anointing His servant for His mission. In Ezekiel 37, verse 9 and 14, that you can find on page 863, and let me just read it to you. Then the Lord God said to me, prophesy to the breath, And say to the breath, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on those that are slain, that they may live. And verse 14, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Again, God speaking in Scripture of His Spirit as an independent person who can and would restore life even to the dead. A priority in the one God. Now we come to the second part when we look at Jesus' life and teaching. Firstly, we look at uh, Jesus' baptism that was described, that is described in Mark chapter 1, from verses 9 to 13. It sets the scene in this way as Jesus was baptized. We start from verse 9. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came out out of the water, Out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And what do we see? Here, in this scene, we see God the Son, though perfectly sinless, in human form, representing humanity's need for repentance, was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. We see God the Holy Spirit descending on him as he came out, out of the water, anointing him for his mission ahead. What else do we know? We hear the voice of God, the Father, acknowledging and endorsing his beloved Son, the one and only God, working in unity of purpose as God acts in history as three persons to save now we come to Jesus' teachings. There's so much of it in the Gospels. So what I've taken is just from John, three passages from John, chapter 14. Let me read chapter, chapter 14, verse 6 to you. And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A ridiculous claim. If Jesus himself was not divine, it's not divine. And in John 14, we carry on in verses 9 to 10. Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This will be a preposterous claim. If Jesus is not divine, how dare he make this claim? He can make this claim because Precisely, He is divine. And we continue with John 14, verses 15 to 17, and verse 26. Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will send you another Helper to be with you forever. Forever. The Spirit of truth. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Three passages in John that allows us no other way of interpretation except that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God, just as the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. The third thing in the life of uh, Jesus, in uh, Jesus' life and teaching, is Jesus' great commission for us that we read just now in our Gospel reading from Matthew 28, particularly verse 19 itself. In verse 19, Jesus said this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as if the Father is a name for God, and the Son is a name for God, and the Holy Spirit is another name for God, but no in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and now we go to the life and teaching of the first century church. Now, first of all, we look at the the uh, feast of Pentecost that it was exp- that, that is um, uh, described in Acts chapter 2 that we dealt that with we, that last week uh, by the dean on page 1085, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, those early disciples saw their Master and their Lord die on that cross. They saw him res- resurrected three days later and spent 40 days with him. They saw him go up in the crowds after the 40 days to be with the Father in heaven. And on that day, Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit came down on them in tongues like fire. And the Spirit anointed these timid and scared people hiding up in the attic in the, on the first floor of a house in Jerusalem. And these people went out fearlessly Proclaiming the gospel of salvation as they were commanded by their Lord and Master Jesus Christ, starting with Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 after the giving of the Holy Spirit. At that occasion, 3,000 people came to know Jesus and were baptized by these early disciples. Secondly, the Christian life in the Spirit. Now, Paul writes this in Romans 8. He despairs for himself because he sees the carnality of his own uh, fleshy desires and lusts for the world. And he says, how can I be saved? And then he says, there is no condemnation in, in Christ anymore. Now, the, whole cha- the chapter is very long to read. Just let me summarize it for you. This passage speaks about how God has set believers free from sin and death in His Son, Jesus Christ so that they are able to live in the Spirit, giving up the temptations of the flesh, even as the indwelling Spirit gives them strength to do so, knowing that nothing can ever separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus their Lord. That is the Christian life in the Spirit as written by Romans, uh, by Paul in Romans. Now the third one, perseverance of the Christian as written by Jude, um, the, the Lord's uh, a brother in Jude, verses 17 to 23. But I will take it from verse 20. It reads, it reads this way. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, and show mercy with fear. The disciples' pers- 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 perseverance that comes from the Holy Spirit, the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ and trusting in the love of God. What a beautiful summary of what we can look forward to in the sure and certain hope that lies in our Trinitarian God. And so in conclusion, well friends, we have just gone through something like uh, 12 or 13 books of the 66 books of the Bible, which is uh, uh, quite an achievement. Congratulations. Uh, But uh, since we know what is uh, the Trinity, uh, God is Trinity, God of grace, God of love, and God of fellowship, how does that apply to our lives? Well, let me suggest three things to you. First of all, it must have an impact in our worship. That knowledge should inspire us to glorify God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must avoid the danger that can be found in so many of our churches today, where contemporary worship is so focused on one specific person of the Trinity or about one specific aspect or blessing or gift of the Triune God. Our worship should be about the glorious God in all His Trinitarian majesty and awesomeness, a worship to be offered to the Father through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings us to faith and will inspire us to pray and worship God, keeps us going, making us strong and holy in His fellowship. Worship such as this would avoid the danger of worship being just about us instead of about our triune God. Now, the second thing that I would suggest to you is that is unity of love in diversity. Is such a complicated statement for just saying that all of us are different, but we are united in love. Unity of love in diversity. Secondly, Christian fellowship is, calling, is a calling to love one another as God so loves us and sent his son to die for us. The church is called to emulate or imitate the fellowship shown in the intimate loving relationship and the communal life of the Trinity. Which has overflowed and which the gracious and loving God has shared with us, the most unworthy of subjects. Even as we prepare for that intimate, loving, eternal fellowship at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this life we are to bring comfort and cheer and support each other. We join each other in our joys and share with each other our griefs as we seek unity in the truth of his word thirdly making god known to make our loving and our gracious god known to all nations to bring the world into the community of god's family teaching them to obey everything that jesus christ has commanded us to do our church is called to be a church on a mission under the command of jesus christ our lord and savior and to bring the world into a universal fellowship of Christ's body on earth, the church for which Christ died. Friends, it is our mission at St Mary's to make disciples of Christ by making him known. And each one of us has a vital part to to play, whether individually or corporately. We can do one-on-one evangelism by talking about God, by talking about Jesus, by talking about the salvation that he brought. Or we can act together as a church across all the congregations of Samaritans, as a church to bring the knowledge of the salvation through the gospel. And one of the great ways of doing it is through Christianity, Christianity Explored. And there is something in your bulletin which I will talk about a little bit more later on where we can join together in something called the Christianity Explored Support Group uh, which we'll have a meeting next Sunday. And perhaps we can get ourselves involved in this and uh, learn how to act as a member uh, of the community in reaching out uh, to others who have yet to know about God. So three things. First, in our worship, secondly, in trying to achieve unity of love in our separate, different uh, ways, uh, in our different uh, diversity, and thirdly, in making God known. Let me end in the words of the grace in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.